0: Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypannuccio.com forward slash act. You've heard it before. Find your voice. Publishers say they're looking for fresh new voices, but what is writer's voice exactly? In today's episode of Writer Unleashed, we're going to explore what we mean by the writer's voice. And a little heads up, your voice is not lost and it does not need to be found. And we're going to compare the voice of two authors and try to get a fix on what's distinctive about each so that you can start to identify what's different about your voice, what makes you distinct, and you can start moving more towards that. Stay tuned. Writer Unleashed is for you is writer's voice? Voice is an all-encompassing term, but to be clear, we're not talking about the voice of a character right now. That's a different discussion. For now, let's talk about your voice, the author's voice, or the voice of the story itself. Voice is the alchemy of qualities and elements that makes your prose distinctly your own and different from anyone else's. It's the indelible signatory imprint embedded in your story, novel, or memoir, and it ultimately derives from your vision of the world. Now, voice is an elusive, mysterious force that really defies definition, but the more we can articulate what distinguishes one author's voice from another— the more we can begin to move closer to accessing and releasing our own voice in our work. So let's take a look at a couple of authors and see if we can identify the range of qualities or elements that makes their work completely their own. Here are two passages, one excerpted from Megan Dom's memoir, Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived In That House, and the second from Ernest Hemingway's story, The Short Happy Life of Frances McComber. Here's a Dom's passage, which takes place as she writes a down payment check on the purchase of her first house. I then wrote a check for $13,500 in earnest money, which represented 3% of the purchase price, I realize that some readers, despite all the housing prices I've heretofore mentioned in these pages, might see such a figure and either A, shoot oatmeal through their noses, or B, lose all sympathy for a narrator, a single semi-unemployed one at that, who could or would pay such a sum. But please understand that in Los Angeles, then... Any property with four walls and a roof that cost under a half a million dollars was considered a steal. Never mind that the house on Escalada Terrace was smaller than a lot of Midwestern garages. Never mind that the garage, about which Karina had only been able to say, there's something weird going on, bore a close resemblance to the ruins of Pompeii. During this period in real estate history, House hunting was akin to a form of speed dating in which you have three minutes to decide whether or not you want to marry someone. And even though my house didn't necessarily make me swoon, it didn't make me gag either. So, like a girl who cares more about being married than about whom she's married to, I swallowed my pride and signed the first set of papers. Okay, so what makes Megan Dom's voice distinct from any other writer? Well, first, she has a sense of humor. She's funny. She's self-deprecating in her humor. Her tone is conversational, and it's intimate. And she tends to take a small topic, in this case, the search for her ideal house, and explore it, turning it over and over in relation to herself. There's a search for identity or self-knowledge at the heart of her writing. and in this, It's not just in this book, but it's in everything she writes. She can take a deceptively small subject, whether it's an obsession with real estate or an addiction to watching The Sopranos with her husband, and use it as a catalyst for self-examination. Now, her subject becomes not only a tool for self-discovery, but a larger commentary about society, about ourselves. Now, she's been accused of being overindulgent, rambling, even neurotic. And maybe she is, but she embraces her neuroses. She revels in it. She's not afraid to point fun at herself. And this is what makes her voice, at least to me, thoroughly engaging. I'll read anything she writes. And here's an excerpt from Hemingway's story, The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber. Francis McComber had, half an hour before, been carried to his tent from the edge of the camp in triumph on the arms and shoulders of the cook, the personal boys, the Skinner, and the porters. The gun bearers had taken no part in the demonstration, when the native boys put him down at the door of his tent, he had shaken all their hands, received their congratulations, and then gone into the tent and sat on the bed until his wife came in. She did not speak to him when she came in, and he left the tent at once to wash his face and hands in the portable wash basin outside and to go over to the dining tent to sit in a comfortable canvas chair in the breeze and the shade. You've got your lion, Robert Wilson said to him, and a damn fine one too. Mrs. McComer looked at Wilson quickly. She was an extremely handsome and well kept woman of the beauty and social position which had, five years before, commanded five thousand dollars as the price of endorsing with photographs, a beauty product which she had never used. She had been married to Frances McComer for eleven years, He's a good lion, isn't he? McComer said. His wife looked at him now. She looked at both these men as though she had never seen them before. Okay, so what makes Hemingway's voice so distinct? When we read a Hemingway story, it's dramatic. The story unfolds before our eyes the way any drama would on the theater stage. He rarely enters the interior mind and emotions of his character's And when he does, it's so fleeting and so subtle, we barely notice it. By comparison, we spend a lot of time inside Megan Dom's mind, and this is true of her fictional characters as well. It's not just because she's writing memoir. Hemingway is far more interested in creating meaning through action, dialogue, body language, and silences. With Hemingway, we're a fly on the wall. We're voyeurs watching, observing, just like he does. Hemingway's point of view is largely objective. And this makes sense because Hemingway began his writing career as a journalist, and his fiction was largely shaped by his reaction to his experiences in World War I. After the war, he rebelled against the elaborate style of 19th century writers by creating stories and novels in which nothing crucial, or at least very little, is stated explicitly. And this is perhaps one of the most distinguishing qualities about his prose. He reveals more by way of omission. While Megan Dahm has a flair for metaphor, for vivid descriptive language, and rambling complex sentences... Hemingway's sentences are taught. The language is simple, direct. His prose is spare and precise, but the simplicity of his prose is deceptive. He says a lot through a little by offering what's been described as a multifocal photographic reality. So voice has to do with your vision of the world and the way you articulate that vision. As fiction writer Abby Frook says, it's the pulse and spin that your story gives to the world. Voice isn't confined to auditory qualities. It has to do with the vocabulary that you bring to your story and with the range of elements that are brought to bear on the story and the aesthetic that dictates the syntax, be it clipped or abundant generous, ironic, measured, crazed, busy, focused, light, or intense. So ultimately, voice is just a matter of letting your feelings and sense of humor or your sense of sorrow, loss, exhilaration, your sanity or lack of your particular passions, fears, prejudices, and eccentricities, whatever it is, allowing that to have a hand in your prose. Twyla Tharp calls this your creative DNA. She believes that we all have strands of creative code hardwired into our imaginations. These strands are as solidly imprinted in us as is the genetic code that determines our height and eye color, except they govern our creative impulses. She says those strands determine the forms we work in, and they determine the stories we tell and how we tell them. So your voice is within you as innately as any other genetic trait. It's inviolable. Your voice is not lost. It's there. It just needs permission to emerge, and it needs permission to come out and play. And when you think about it, as far as human experiences go, we pretty much have the same. We've all experienced love and infatuation. We've all experienced loss and grief. We've all had our hearts broken. We've all experienced shame. We've been afraid, exhilarated, joyful, embarrassed, humiliated. But what makes our experiences different, what makes our voice completely our own, is our interpretation of these experiences. It's the synaptic connections we make. It's the imagery and memories that come unbidden. It's the meaning we derive out of our experience, and it's the order in which we lay that experience across the page. It's the form we're inclined to write in, whether it's the short story or flash fiction, novels or memoir, or the personal essay. It's the things we can't help noticing, and it's the things we refuse to notice. So here's an exercise straight from Twyla Tharp's book, The Creative Habit, that I think is a great way to see just how uniquely you see the world and how that vision can impact your stories. So this exercise is called Watch and Observe. Go outside and observe a street scene. Pick a man and a woman together and write down everything they do until you get to 20 items. The man may touch the woman's arm. Write it down. She may run her hand through her hair. Write it down. She may shake her head. He may lean in toward her. She may pull away or lean in toward him. She may put her hands in her pockets or search for something in her purse. He may turn his head to watch another woman walking by. Write it all down. It shouldn't take you too long to acquire 20 items. Now, if you study the list, it shouldn't be hard to apply your imagination to it and come up with a story about the couple. Are they friends, would-be lovers, brother and sister, work colleagues, adulterers, neighbors who run into each other on the street? Are they fighting or breaking up or falling in love or planning a weekend together or debating which movie they want to see? The details on your list provide plenty of material for a short story, but that's not the goal of the exercise. Now, do it again. Pick another couple. This time, note only the things that happen between them that you find interesting that please you aesthetically or emotionally. I guarantee that it will take you a lot longer to compile a list of 20 items this way And that's because when you apply judgment to your powers of observation, you become selective, you edit, you filter the world through your particular prism. Now, study the two lists. What appealed to you in the second, more selective list? Was it the moments of friction between the couple or the moments of tenderness? Was it the physical gestures or their gazes away from each other? The varying distance between them? The way they shifted their feet or leaned up against a wall or took off their glasses or scratched their chins? Now, here's the thing what caught your fancy is not as important as the difference between the two lists. What you included and what you left out speaks volumes about how you see the world. Now, if you do this exercise enough times, patterns will emerge. The world won't be revealed to you. You will be revealed. Thanks so very much for joining me today. If this episode resonated for you, please leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed yet, hop on board. I come to you each week jam-packed with writing tips and inspiration to write stories that matter to you and that matter to your readers. Keep writing, and I'll see you next week, same time, same place.